Life is hectic, so wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with Factor's chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 options a week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, they've got a variety that fits your lifestyle. Factor has restaurant-quality meals ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. They also have various easy options for the entire day, from breakfast to midday bites, smoothies, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a nutritious and delicious experience, and it won't break the bank. You can customize your meals by choosing 6 to 18 per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime to fit your schedule. Factor meals are 100% hassle-free, giving you more time for what matters. Head to factormeals.com slash otherside50 and use the code otherside50 to get 50% off. That's code otherside50 at factormeals.com for 50% off your delicious, hassle-free meals. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, The Other Side NDE, where we talk about the fascinating phenomena of near-death experiences. These are more than just close calls. These are first-hand accounts of what people experienced dying, leaving the body, exploring another realm, and then returning to their body in order to share that experience with you. Every person that we interview and many of us listeners believe these accounts to be undeniably true experiences people had on the other side. If you enjoy listening to stories like these, make sure to check out our YouTube channel, The Other Side NDE, where we post two to three videos every week of people sharing their NDE stories. Well, hello, I am normal. I was named by my father and the meaning of the name normal is the teacher. And it has certainly turned out to be exactly that in my life. In the early 1960s, yes, the 1960s, I had a near-death experience. And at that time, I was 26 years of age, and I lived in London, England. I was married. Uh, we had one child, the very first child. And for about a month, I was um, not feeling well at all. And so I was on and off uh, from work. And doctors did not seem to know what was wrong with me because I did not have the usual signs of pregnancy. And so I was out for about a month on and off. And then even though I was not feeling well, it was time to return to work. And it's Monday morning and I um, leave my baby, my son, with his babysitter. And I make my way to work. Uh, in the city of London. I get to work and throughout the day, I am experiencing excruciating pain. At about four o'clock in the afternoon, I look at the, the time, I look at the clock because we're scheduled to leave at five. And I look at the clock and it occurred to me that the pains I was experiencing felt like labor pains. So I asked to be released early stepped into the elevator and 
There was one other person in the elevator, and she was a Hindu young woman. Her name was Selena. I did not know Selena at the time, and we were the only two people in the elevator. And in those days, in the 1960s, elevators stopped with a jerk. And when the elevator stopped with a jerk, it seemed like all hell broke loose inside of me. And the pain intensified and I collapsed. Now, Celine got very busy and she uh, attracted some other people and um, they hailed a cab because the hospital was just a few blocks down the road. And they managed to get me into the cab. Somewhere while I was in the cab, I kind of came back into semi-consciousness and she asked me, what's your name? I said, my name is Norma. And then I I went back into unconsciousness. They got me to the to the um, hospital, got me into the emergency room, and um, I am, I'm, I'm out of it. I'm totally unconscious. Now, the cab driver who helped her to get me into the emergency room drove away with my handbag in his cab. He was unaware that he had done that, and he did return the bag the very next day. But the dilemma that they faced was that here was a patient and all she could tell them was, well, who is she? She said her name is normal. What's her last name? I don't know. Where is she from? What, where does she live? Where does she work? Selena knew nothing about me. And God bless her. She stayed. She stayed. They took a picture of me in the unconscious state and they gave it to the police. And the police set out to try to trace where my abode was, where I lived, and, and, and where my family was. In the meantime, I, um, I again come back to, to semi-consciousness for a moment, and I'm on a trolley, and there are two doctors wheeling this trolley into an emergency room, into the operating room. And um, and the doctor explained to me that I, I have a dead fetus inside of me, and they needed to do surgery to remove it, and by which time I, I went back into unconsciousness. And um, the next thing I know is the pain is gone. There is no pain. I'm at perfect peace. The only problem is I'm on the ceiling and I'm looking down at my body on an operating table. <laughs> you talk about confused. I am thoroughly confused. How could I be in two places at the same time? And the fact that I'm on the ceiling looking down and I'm practically no pain at all. Pain is gone. And um, I'm observing the, the nurses moving back and forth to the doctors, you know, handing the equipment they need. And, and, and I'm like, almost freaked out on, on the on the ceiling. And then it dawned on me that since I was no longer in pain, it might be a good idea to let the team know that the pain is gone and there's no need for this operation, you see. And so with that, the thought came to me, uh, how do I get up off the ceiling? And as soon as I asked the question, I found myself on the ground. I'm on the ground and I'm at face level. And I'm going, I'm trying, the, the, the doctors, I'm saying, hello, can you see me? I am here. I cannot explain what is happening here. 
but you don't need it's not an emergency anymore because the pain has gone but i'm moving from one doctor to the other and they don't seem to be able to see me at all so then i figured that women being more intuitive they might better be able to recognize me in the room so now i'm moving between the nurses and the nurses are scurrying back and forth and i'm trying to say hello hello this is me i'm okay there's no need for the emergency surgery etc and then i discovered that nobody could see or hear me so then i find myself back on the ceiling and i'm looking on and the graft indicates that i have flat eye now i i had friends who were nurses and i understood what flatline meant and now i'm really really confused how could i be flatline supposedly dead but i have all my senses wrong so when they picked up what i call the um, they pick up the paddles it looked like a pair of paddles doctor picked up the paddles in his hand i could see the corona the outline of electricity around those paddles And again to tell that I was thinking very clearly and very deeply the thought in my head was I'm not dead I don't understand what's going on here but if they applied that amount of electricity to my body they would probably accidentally kill me so is there a way I can get out of here before that happens and with that thought again I found myself moving through the ceiling and out in to a very very dark tunnel stream in that tunnel the strange thing was i was not afraid i am still at peace i feel very light in my body and i'm moving very swiftly extremely fast through this very dark tunnel and we come around a corner and when we come around this corner i could see the end of the tunnel before me and at the end of the tunnel was this amazing velocity of light it was like a kaleidoscope of color and it it kind of faded into white light as i'm approaching it it seemed like a kaleidoscope of color and then it faded into crystal clear white light and the moment as i was about to enter the light the thought that entered my head was this light is so bright the brilliance of the light was so bright that i felt that it would probably burn my eyes and render me blind i really had that little fear at that moment there that if i survived all this it would probably render me probably blind me because of the velocity of the light that i entered as soon as i entered the light i felt a phenomenal welcome i felt like i was embraced by the light i felt like i had become light and having become light i could feel the energy of love a phenomenal level of love that seemed to surround me enfold me and i had kind of like woven into and become one with this love 
it was it really is an experience that, that that words cannot describe words are totally inadequate to describe the extreme feeling of love this you're enveloped in love and 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 this beautiful light that seems to make everything not only brilliant but even the thoughts very brilliant and um the next thought I had was, how do I get around here? And as soon as I have that thought again, you know, it's an indication that our thoughts lead to action. As soon as I had that thought, I found myself traveling and I ended up, I came to a point where I am facing what looked like a large television screen. Now, in the 1960s, television screens were very small. I ended up in front of this television screen. I stopped in front of the screen. The screen lit up. And once it lit up, it was divided into three sections. Section on the left had a heading that says, the life that I had created, the plan that I had created for my life. The second column was the way I had lived the 26 years uh, that I had just left. And the third column at that point was blank. So I'm looking at one column that says, this is your life as you have planned it. The middle column is, this is your life as you have lived it for the past 26 years. And the third column is blank. And then the screen begins to scroll. As the screen begins to scroll, now I can see what it is that I planned. And the effect that I expected if I lived out that very first part of the plan. And in the middle column now, I am I'm looking at and revising how I have lived this objective that I set for myself. And then when I turn my eyes to the last column, the third column, it was as though someone had created a stamp. And in the third column, it said, objective not accomplished. And then the screen, screen scrolled up a bit more. And now I'm out of childhood and I'm more into my, my teenage days, school and teenage days. And again, I can see on the left-hand side the objectives that I had set in my plan and what it is that I should have accomplished during those years. Again, on the, the third section of the screen, Again, the stamp objectives not accomplished. And we went through the different stages of the 26 years that I have lived. Well, now I am quite amused, believe it or not. I don't feel judgmental. There's nobody judging what I'm reviewing. But now I'm amused because I'm thinking, I lived for 26 years. How could I not have known what it is that I had set for myself? And the fact that it seemed that I had lived the complete opposite to what was contained in my life's objectives. And the column on the third side really amused me because in each, at the end of each segment, there again was the stamp, objectives not accomplished, objectives not accomplished. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking, wow, that was kind of sort of a wasted, a wasted life. And there were um, things 
there were things that I reviewed in the life, in my, the life I had just left, that answered some of my questions about life, life on earth. You see, I was a child who had many, many questions. I was raised in a Christian tradition, deeply, deeply centered in the Christian religion. And I had many, many questions about biblical text. And so now I am looking at, at the way I live my life and I am discovering that while I believed a lot of what was taught to me, it did not seem to have transferred into my knowing, knowing that this was truth. Now there was one piece of scripture that bothered me since I was nine years old. And that piece of scripture was a piece of scripture where Christ said, I came so that you can have life and have it more abundantly. And I asked every pastor I ever encountered, well, what did Christ mean by that? Because he came, he himself died on a cross, and people have been dying ever since. So what did that mean? Or did it mean that when I asked the pastor whether it meant that Christ was perhaps telling us a lie, my mother drew me aside and very carefully said to me that I was not to even look in the pastor's direction while we were in church. Neither was I allowed to ask any questions because my questions was beginning to embarrass the pastors from whom I was seeking answers. And so I started to write, write my questions down. But this one question remained very foremost in my mind. And as the review of the, of the 26 years of my life came to an end, the question popped into my mind. But before I go to what the next sequence brought forth, that very first review taught me some things. Like, for example, you cannot be blessed twice if whatever it is that you're doing in the world is securing compensation from which you live, that is your blessing. Our blessings come when we provide services or we give of ourselves or we give our knowledge absolutely free of charge. And that's when the blessings come down because you see, if you are not compensated in the physical world, then you have to be compensated from the spiritual side of the world. I also learned that um, 90% of the things that, that we tend to ask for when we are functioning in the world has nothing to do with the plan that we have set. So that in order for us to manifest and perhaps lead our lives into purpose, we have to begin to really listen, listen inwardly so that we can get in touch with the goals and the objectives that were set on the earth side before we came to earth. So here I am now, and the first 26 years of my life has been reviewed, and I have learned some things about it. And um, this burning question comes forth.
And it seems to me like the burning question now took me to the Akashic record. The Akashic record is the record of everything that has happened in the world. And notice I said worlds, not just this world. And um, the outcome and what it has produced in terms of energy in our lives. So now I am drawn to an even bigger screen. And as I stand before the screen, the screen begins to scroll very slowly. And I'm now reviewing six previous lifetimes that I have lived. The very first one is in the very, very, very dark ages when earth was very dark and human beings walked around with torches. And I see myself in that lifetime and there is tribal war. And the village in which I lived at the time, um, they were losing. They were on the losing end of the war and they had some very deep concerns about the fact that if women and children died in the war, they would be hard pressed to be able to, um, to rise again. So they mustered as many little boats as they had and they put us women and children in these boats and they pushed the boats out to sea with what little food they had in the hope that we would be preserved. The boat that I was in uh, had 23 other women and it sank and we all drowned. which left within me a fear of water and a fear of drowning. The next life that I envisioned was a life as a male. I was a male and I was a warrior and seemed pretty good at it too. Then the third life that I encountered, I was at the bulrushes when Moses was pulled out of the water. I was one of the women who were at the bulrushes when Moses was pulled out of the water. Another lifetime I lived, I was present when at the cross, saw myself at the cross as a spectator and screaming, crucify him, which again brought a lot of guilt. We live in a guilt-ridden world. That put a lot of guilt on my soul and on my spirit. And the lifetime that really, really stood out phenomenally for me was to see myself along with my parents who were slaves in the United States of America, picking cotton. I was a child and along with my parents, we were in the fields picking cotton. And as a child, I could hear the hooves of the horse upon which the mass and man rode. And I can also hear the crack of the whip as it hit the backs of those slaves who were not producing or working as swiftly as they could. And again, experienced tremendous fear knowing that when the mass and man got to me as a child, I could not keep up with my quota and the fear of feeling the whip on my back. 
And then the screen moved. And when it moved, I was at the next lifetime. And believe it or not, I was the white slave owner on a horse carrying the whip and doing exactly to the slaves that which I was so very much afraid of. That one baffled me. That one baffled me because I had never been introduced to reincarnation. That, that was not part of my religious upbringing. And so I was more than a little baffled. How could I be at one point in time a black slave girl and at another point in, in, in time and history, I could have been uh, the, the white slave master. So the, the scrolling came to an end. And I'm standing there and again, very baffled, wondering, how do I get around in this environment? And again, as soon as I ask the question, I am moving, moving very swiftly. And now I am taken to a river. When I was a child in church, we sang that little chorus. Yes, we will gather by the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Gather with the saints of the river that flows from the throne of God. And I was taken to the river. And on the other side of the river, it was not a very wide river, but on the other side of the river, there were hundreds of saints. And later on, I was told there were 348 souls there. And they were all beaming phenomenal love towards me. Oh my goodness, I just felt enveloped in love and, and feeling this love in my heart and in my spirit and in my soul. And recognizing that these were all ancestors and among them were people who I could recognize because they had died in my lifetime. And then my aunt, who I was raised between my mother and my aunt, and she stepped forward in the, in the river and began to wade towards me as I stepped forward on the other side to wade towards her. And again, this phenomenal amount of love, I knew, I knew that my aunt loved me, but I had no idea that her love was so phenomenal. And just as we got to the place where we were about to embrace, she stepped back a few paces and she says, I am so sorry, but you cannot cross. And I said, why? And she says, because they're sending you back with a message. And I said, but wait a minute, there are millions of people back there. Surely they could find somebody back there and give them the message. And they said, no. She said, no, they would like for you to return with the message. And the message was, there is more to life than meets the eye. Life is, and that word is was stressed. Life is eternal. And the next thing I know, I am falling, falling, falling very, very rapidly and crashed into my body. And even though I was still on the anesthesia, when I crashed into the body, I felt the excruciating pain 
on my journey back in my body against my will. We start. Now, while the near-death experience itself was quite phenomenal, the light on the other side and the love and the glory, that's the only word that I think halfway can really explain what it is I experienced there. So I'm back now in the body and, and, and I become conscious and I'm in pain and I am definitely not a happy camper. But I'm in a, in a, you know, I'm in a room and there is a nurse, nur two nurses sitting at a table and they are, their hands are moving, they're doing whatever it is they're doing with their hands. But they're talking, they're sharing this conversation among them. And it seemed to me, it seemed that they both belonged to the same church. And one of them went to church that Sunday because she was off and the other one was on duty. So the one who went to church is summarizing the summary of the sermon that was preached on the Sunday. And the sermon had a lot to do with preparing yourself so you do not enter into hell. And I'm lying in this bed and I am outraged. I'm outraged, but there is no hell. Why would, why would, why would a pastor be preaching about hell? But I can't say anything because I've got, I've got tubes in my throat, you see, so I cannot explain what it is that I'm feeling. But I'm feeling outraged that a, a pastor from a pulpit would be preaching something like hell. Um, and then it dawned on me, suddenly dawned on me, maybe wait a minute, honey. when you woke up, because by now it was a clock in front of me, by now it was, it, it was past midnight, you see. And I thought, but when you woke up yesterday morning, you believed what she's saying. What in the world happened that now you are like diametrically opposed to this concept? And so I'm listening to this and, and, and I'm beginning to realize now that, wait a minute, I've come back with some different belief systems. Now, when the conversation about the sermon came to an end, they turned on a radio that was sitting there between them and there was softly classical music playing very softly. And I'm lying there and I'm hearing the music and I'm realizing that coming out of this radio, I can see the color of the notes. No, <laughs> talk about confused. I am hearing music. I'm listening to music. I grew up with a lot of classical music in, in my household, but now I can see the color of the notes and I'm recognizing that every note has a color and every color is aligned to a number. And I'm watching this interaction of, of rhythm, color, and numbers. And I'm absolutely fascinating because it is creating a pattern. And guess what? The pattern is flowing into these two individuals who are sitting there working very assiduously with their hands. Then two other medical professionals came along and they stopped to talk to the two young ladies. And what I notice is that they're also absorbing this phenomenal complexity of, 
of light, of color, of rhythm, and of numbers. And so my journey began with very, very heightened senses. I began to look at the, the doctors and the nurses and I could identify the ones who I felt, well, goodness gracious me, they're not aware as yet that they have medical problems because now I can see inside of the body and I can see that while they're working so hard at helping sick people uh, kind of regain their health, they're really not as aware that they have, some of them have uh, medical problems that have not quite risen to the surface. So I'm looking at the interaction of people and I was hospitalized for about nine days and I'm watching the interaction of people and it became quite a unique experience observing the world within the hospital and with eyes and with senses that had become very, very, very much enhanced. And um, it, it was quite amazing. Now, when I was discharged from the hospital, and there was discharged, my husband came and he, when we stepped outside, oh my God, the, the outside, the environment of nature was just very different from what I had last remembered it. Because now I can see the color again and the rhythm in the trees and the leaves and of people who are moving back and forth. I could see at one point when I stopped and I really looked at this tree and it was winter so that there were no leaves on the tree. But when I looked all the way down, I could see all the way down into the ground where all the energy from the tree had gone, the sap and the energy from the tree had gone all the way down into the ground. And I could see this color and dance and rhythm still going on deep, deep in the earth. It was fascinating to see the world through extended senses. I could look at people and I could almost tell what they're thinking at that time. And, and, and again, as I said, I, I, I had to restrain myself because I often wanted to, wanted to touch people and say, you need to go see a doctor. And sometimes I did. When was the last time you had a medical checkup? Maybe you should go see a doctor because I can see what's going on inside the organs on the inside of the body. So my life uh, upon returning was very different to the life I lived before I had the near-death experience. I began to realize that I had become infinitely more compassionate because having the experience, the extended senses that you can see what's going on with people, and then it, it meant that I, I had lost a lot of the judgmental ways in which I judged people uh, because I can see uh, some of the history that they've gone through that probably brought them to wherever they found themselves. Now, on the, the very first day that I had to return to the hospital for a checkup, we got to the hospital, my husband and I, and we're waiting on the 
you know how you have a, a like a circle where you cross half of the street and you stop there to wait for the traffic on the other side of the street to, to cease. And I'm standing behind this woman. And to this day, I can never be sure whether she stepped into the traffic deliberately or... But the next thing I know is there's traffic moving back and forth and she stepped off the sidewalk and she was hit. And when she was hit, her body, her spirit started to leave her body and move upward. And I'm standing there behind her and I'm like mesmerized by this because I'm thinking of my own body and how it, my own body and how my spirit rose out of my body and standing behind her. Well, of course, it's like all hell broke loose and people came and, and um, you know, people came to her rescue and, 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 and personnel from the hospital came. But I remembered feeling very guilty later on. And I was the closest person to her when, after she got hit and got hit the ground. But I spent my time directing her spirit out of her body and saying to her, it's okay, it's okay. You know, you will go to the other side, you will go through the tunnel. And I'm directing this silently to her you know, and, and helping her to move out more comfortably. And as a matter of fact, um, watched her go through the tunnel. And as she got to the, the exit of the tunnel, then I kind of turned my attention to the fact that I, I, from a physical perspective, I felt bad that I had done nothing to reach out and maybe touch her because I was the closest to her when she fell to the ground. I had done none of that but I had been very instrumental in guiding her through the tunnel and to the other side. Now, for the next three years of my life, I became very, very depressed. Depression set forth, and I could not, I could not, I could not get out of it because all I wanted to do was to return return to the other side where there was this phenomenal levels of love and phenomenal levels of light. And as a matter of fact, attempted suicide three times. Then of course I got depressed because it just seemed like I couldn't kill myself. And um, the third time that I attempted suicide, I, I, I collected um, a certain amount of pills that I needed, cleaned the house, put my son out in the garden to play. And then I um, I began the process of saying a prayer before I left. And my son comes running in from the garden and he's like, mommy, 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 look what I found. And when he opened his hand, he had a caterpillar with a butterfly halfway emerging from it. And I thought that was a very interesting and amazing metaphor for me. And I looked at my son and I thought in my head, who is going to, who is going to teach him the mysteries of life when you're gone? And so I, I lowered the pills into the toilet pool, followed by the water, grabbed my son up, took him to the playground, and 
made a determination there and then that if I had had the privilege of going to the other side because of a medical emergency, that I would do whatever it takes to see if it was possible to return to the other side in my conscious state. And um, that took eight spiritual teachers, three continents, and a lot of spiritual work. But eventually I was able to do that. And now I have the ability to travel back and forth. That I think is the sum total of my near-death experience. Since then, I have done a tremendous amount of spiritual work and it led me to a purpose-driven life. I asked the question, uh, what is my purpose? Because that is the only thing I could not remember from my near-death experience. And um, asked the question, what is my purpose? And that led me to becoming a chaplain, becoming ordained, becoming a chaplain in prisons and worked for 27 years providing chaplain services as well as therapeutic services to prisoners who were getting ready to re-enter, re-enter the community. So it took, it took work, it took time. What have I learned from my near-death experience that there, life is eternal. Love is all we need. And that reincarnation is very real. And that we, we keep coming back until we learn our lessons. And that uh, love is the key to the joy and the happiness that we, as humanity, seem to seek out.